Hello everyone, Kamustaka. Welcome to today's episode, the first of the batch I'll be doing on Nole Me Tangere, the pivotal novel by Jose Rizal that, if the back of my copy is anything to go by, is the novel that, quote, sparked the Philippine Revolution, end quote. I talked about this last week, but it was Jose Rizal's work that turned him into the George Washington of the Philippines, not his military achievements. He did not have any. But his book gave the Filipino people a sense of agency again, and it brought the truth of colonialism into the public light, where everyone could finally have their suspicions confirmed and then acted upon. Anyway, that's how I interpreted what I was learning about Jose Rizal. And as someone who likes to write stories, hint hint, I have an audio drama called The Oracle of Dusk, there was something truly awe-inspiring about a writer or storyteller becoming a national hero. Not that I have that much ambition or anything. I don't know, it's just a fun thing I like doing. It's a good way to bring people together and all that. This is where things get interesting, though, because even when I wrote that, I had no misconceptions that this was a narrative of my own design. It was rooted in reality, but it was also my reality. And considering this is my podcast, that seemed thematically appropriate. But it turns out that everything about this book, and Rizal in general, returns to the themes of presentation and the framing surrounding the narrative therein. So yeah, there turned out to be something poetic in my choice. Let's start with the introduction that came with my copy of Nole Me Tangere. It's the Penguin Classics edition, translated by Harold Augenbrom, by the way. Augenbrom includes an introduction to the story that tries to contextualize it and resolves life in a way that can make any uninformed reader understand the importance of it all. Right on the first page of that introduction, Augenbrom opens up with the spectacle that was Rizal's execution. The story goes that Rizal was ordered to keep his back to the firing squad, so he could die as a traitor falling face down into the dirt. But Rizal had asked to face the other way. Now, story or not, There is some truth there, if you look hard enough. Poetic truth, maybe. It calls back to an interpretation of the the turn-the-other-cheek Bible passage in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 39. One interpretation of that passage isn't telling you to forgive and give the other person the chance to hit you again because, hey, they might not. Rather, it could have been that Jesus was advising you to present your other cheek, because at that angle, the only way the other person could strike you again was as an equal, not as someone who was above you. That's not Augenbrom, by the way. That's a biblical interpretation I remember from college whose source I couldn't find again. Admittedly. On the other hand, it's worth remembering that Rizal hadn't advocated for outright independence so much as he wanted reform. He didn't want new, he wanted better. And in this way, you could see him fighting to keep that narrative from outright breaking. 
How could he be a traitor if he wasn't betraying anything? He only wanted a better version of what was there, and honestly, that's the best type of support you could ever give something. Or he could have been taking his own advice, making his death something to be remembered. After all, as he once said to a friend, one only dies once, and if one does not die well, a good opportunity is lost and will not present itself again. Regardless of the details, Augenbrom's introduction captures the way that the man in his book took on a mythical status in the Filipino consciousness. These aren't just things anymore. They are a critical part of the Filipino narrative. If you couldn't tell from the first couple seconds of this episode when I said it in passing, I'm going to be doing a few episodes on Nole Me Tandre. I had a lot of thoughts after reading this book, which makes sense. There's a lot in there to think about, partially because of the layering in the actual text of the story, the place the book as an object has taken in Filipino history, and the place this book now takes in my own life. For this episode, I want to focus on the framing that even lands outside of the book but is still part of the book. And I promise things will not move so slowly in the upcoming episodes, but I do think certain details are vital in understanding the work that Rizal laid out and the work his novel and he would do for the Philippines after its release and his execution. To lay out a bit of the history of this book that is going to greatly influence my treatment of it, it was originally published in Germany in 1887 during Rizal's time in Europe. Not because of a publishing contract, but because Rizal wanted it to exist. He borrowed some money from a friend to get the initial batch of books out. Ultimately, there was no interest in the plight of colonialized people, or at least not a commercial interest that a publisher was willing to stand behind. If anything, the opposite might have been true. Europeans would have likely had a vested interest in pretending that colonialism was an incorruptible good for the peoples it was inflicted on. But that needs to be unpacked in a different context. But the actual point. Rizal wanted it to exist and borrowed money from his friend to make it happen. But its contents made dissemination both slow and also somewhat inevitable because of a precursor to the Streisand effect. The Streisand effect being a phenomenon online when suppression of an image leads to it being literally everywhere. The forbidden nature of this book, and the attempts of governments to stifle it, drew fascination, more so every time it was stopped at a border. Now, neither Augenbrom nor anyone else can lay out the exact timeline of events between Noli's arrival in the Philippines and the political unrest it created, but that's partially because of a few factors. For one, a great deal of time has passed since then, two, some of these records could have been suppressed, and three, it all happened very quickly. Augenbrom says local governments grew restless in a matter of weeks, likely because of the nature of the offenses against them, and because, to be frank, Noli didn't do more than light a match. All the fuel for the fire was already there. 
Another thing of note, Augenbrom also points out that Rizal might have been, or likely was, influenced by Victor Hugo's novel Les Miserables. And that feels noteworthy when you consider the numerous asides or comments Rizal puts into his work, things that any contemporary editor worth their salt would have immediately cut. You see, Victor Hugo is somewhat infamous for being wordy, among many other things that would warrant an advisory warning for this podcast if I were to discuss them. Now, Hugo might have been paid per word for Les Mis. That's a very believable rumor, which speaks to the amount of potentially needless filler Hugo packed into that book. But it seems as if Rizal had a very different takeaway. One of the central themes of Hugo's novel was a philosophical one. Namely, to contrast actual good with proclaimed good, particularly as it related to law and religion. In Les Mis, Jean Valjean, the novel's protagonist, starts off as a convict, an evil man for breaking his parole after being imprisoned for 19 years after stealing bread to feed his sister's children during a famine. In theory, the law is carried out. Valjean is caught, arrested, charged, and he's supposed to serve his sentence, including the parole. But on parole, Valjean finds himself hated, unable to get a new start. It's not until a kindly bishop gifts Valjean with expensive silver items that Valjean had admittedly tried to steal, that Valjean is able to become an honest man. Restoration of goodness and grace didn't come from obeying the law, but from somewhat defying it. And that's the contrast that defines Hugo's book. You can tell me, the reader or anyone, what the law actually says and is. But when you confront me with actual people trying to make the most of their lives in extreme poverty and suppression, I might make a different choice. Knowing all of that led me to a couple conclusions. First, it is an authentic portrayal of how Rizal viewed the colonial government, without anyone to restrain him. And that genuine nature spoke volumes to the people it reached. Second, the story is framed in such a way as to focus on the various miscarriages of justice that plagued colonial society, contrasted to actual grace and dignity. And finally, Authorial intent aside, I personally don't see how this book could have ever led to reform in lieu of outright rebellion, which was supposedly what Rizal was hoping for. Augenbrom really confirmed this for me, but Rizal has completely lost control and say over his legacy. In fact, everyone has. He's become a larger-than-life figure that has the same hard-to-lay-out qualities that the term Filipino has. You can think you know what it means, but the fact that this podcast is pretty much slated to go on into perpetuity should drill in the point that this is not an easy thing to define. Maybe the romantic side of him would like to know of his larger-than-life presence. It would certainly seem in character. But yeah, none of us really have any way of knowing. Nole Me Tangere is also known by the title The Social Cancer, but that's not a literal translation, nor is it all that good of a replacement title. 
It cuts straight to the point while missing the nuance of Rizal's actual choice. Rizal took the title from a biblical passage in St. John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 17. The whole thing reads, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascended unto my Father, and your Father, and to my God, and your God. Here's the whole picture. Basically, after being crucified, Jesus is making his rounds visiting his disciples, and he runs into Mary Magdalene, who immediately goes to touch him, thrilled to see him, quote, alive. And Jesus is just like, touch me not, which is the literal translation of Nole Me Tangere. Now, when you consider that, after this, Jesus let his disciples handle his wounds, it's a bit hard to understand why she's the exception. I mean, we could go into the whole socio-historical contextualization of this particular gospel book relative to the life of Jesus and the history of Christianity, but no, let's not. If we don't do that, there's two basic interpretations. One, at that point, because Jesus sees her relatively early on, the wounds of the crucifixion are probably still very fresh, and Jesus, in his bodily form, can very much still feel pain. And touch was a way to instill belief, belief that Mary Magdalene still very much had in him. So her touching him would have been pointless, but still very much painful. Hence why he made that choice. Second, while you might have interpreted the text to mean that she was just touching him or poking him or tapping on him in some way, she might have been doing a lot more. She might have been hugging him or outright restraining him in some way. It's possible that her joy and love for him might have actually been hindering him from doing his resurrection work, and he was telling her to not do that, but to go spread the good news instead. Either way, both interpretations have a thread that connects them that could actually be what Rizal was trying to get at. When Mary Magdalene sees Jesus, there is pain and suffering. And focusing on that, or constantly handling that, is only going to hinder things. Worshipping pain for pain's sake isn't going to yield anything. You need momentum. You need to go forth. You need to spread the good news of change. This novel is meant to give momentum to the plights laid out in the story. Momentum that will lead to resolution. And it's fairly poetic that this message comes from one of the main tools of the colonial government. Religion. It's important to remember that unlike most colonial governments, it wasn't the general or appointed governors that truly held power. It was the friars. There could have been various reasons for this. Agenbrom's writing led me to think it was because forming a unified Spanish-dictated identity in the Philippines was hard, with so many different ethno-linguistic groups. 
whereas missionaries were able to adapt certain aspects of pre-existing religions into the Christian schema, making this new religion even more tolerable. But it's hard to lay out every single factor that gave the church advantages in this power struggle. On the other hand, if you take Rizal's portrayal of church-people relations at face value, there's probably an epiphany to be had when, within the first 30 pages or so, a priest openly brags about the devotion people in various communities show him, despite the fact that he does not speak their language, and his efforts to learn have been a bit... lacking. He can't even understand the confessions people offer him, but he still goes through the motions, prescribes an arbitrarily selected penance that likely does not fit the sins he, in soft air quotes, heard, and offers forgiveness as if anything in that schema makes sense, which it doesn't. But the people still adore him. They're still trying to hold on to something, anything, that links them to a higher force or power. Almost like it's a genuine urge or desire. And it may very well be. Now, Rizal clearly holds the structure of the church in contempt with reason, and influenced by personal circumstances. But it's the structure he has a problem with, not so much the whole. When reading the book with modern eyes, you can see that the friars and priests of Nole Metangere are largely just going through the motions, like the aforementioned example of a priest hearing confessions he doesn't understand. Where's the theology? Where's the actual divinity? Now technically, technically, according to canon law, it would be acceptable for a priest to offer absolution to someone he doesn't understand, in no small part because the church keeps a sometimes bad things happen and you have to make a judgment call card in the figurative pocket. Which isn't bad in all situations. For example, a baby born very sickly and on the verge of death can be hastily baptized in the minutes between its first and last breath by anyone in good standing with the church, because, yeah, that is a terrible and tragic situation. Let's not use bureaucracy and theology to make it even worse. I don't think Rizal would object too much to something like that. After all, he doesn't seem entirely anti-faith, though that might just be a sign of his times. Ultimately, it seems like to him the divine still lingers but the structure built upon that foundation is rotting. And I think this was strongest in that first page marked to my country. I think it's this passage where the alternative title, The Social Cancer, comes from. Rizal uses that term to refer to the suffering specific to the people of the Philippines as being a most heinous cancer that they haven't seemed to have noticed. They haven't been able to see it just yet, so he has to lift the veil off of them. He wants to bring it to their attention. Like when the ancients placed the sick, quote, on the steps of their temples, so that each in his own way could invoke the divinity that might offer the cure, end quote. And it seems like Rizal sources this cure as being in the people and in his country. If they can only see the affliction on their skin, they can treat it. 
Now, I don't deny that Rizal invoked the word divinity in the context of comparing his countrymen to the ancient philosophers of days gone by, to whom nearly everything could be considered divine. Consequently, I have to admit that it might not have had any extra significance or meaning. And maybe I shouldn't be going down this route. But at the same time, he's ascribing a great deal of power to the conscious awareness of his people in a way that, to me, reads like a callback to the divine and a divine power. Just because it's not vested in the church doesn't mean it doesn't actually exist. It could exist just elsewhere. Both interpretations, that it doesn't exist versus exist elsewhere, without further information, are both equally valid. And when you consider the aforementioned uproar this book caused, the eventual march towards complete independence, I would default more to saying that there is power within the Filipino people that merely needed to be awakened, and that it was in many ways divine, and that this, quite possibly, is what they were looking for. Now, I'm hesitant to close out this or any episode on this book or in this podcast without linking the subject back to me, but to be honest, I have less to say on this than I will on other aspects of the story. Because yes, despite the time and space divide, I still hear the march of Rizal's proverbial drums. I feel connected to this book in a way I wasn't expecting to feel, and I'm not sure why I wasn't expecting it. Maybe because of my cousin's Facebook post, made from the perspective of someone taking on a difficult homework assignment. Whereas I get to come into it with a sense of unhindered optimism and discovery. Possibly, but really, it's hard to say. If you haven't read this book yet, I'd go ahead and get on that. And I would recommend the edition with the introduction by Augenbrom, even if it is a bit more expensive than some of the others. Even if it's only because it might help you understand any of the other things I'll say about this book. But that's all coming later. <laughs>